Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Now this evening is the second sermon in our sermon series on the revelation of Jesus Christ to St. John. And our text is the prologue, Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, page 1028 in your pew Bible. We were last together, I introduced this letter with four principles to guide us. The first is that Revelation is only understood in the light of the Old Testament. Indeed, it has more allusions to the Old Testament than all the other New Testament books combined. And we know how New Testament authors, when either quoting or alluding to the Old Testament, it's not just the verse that we see in our New Testament text, but it's the entire passage from which that verse is derived. And so some larger Old Testament sections are patterns for similarly large portions of Revelation. The difference being in John's perspective. He simply understands the Old Testament as pointing prophetically towards the events of the new and to Jesus Christ. Therefore, what is applied to Israel in the Old Testament is given a much wider sense by John. The second is that an interpretation of Revelation is a symbolic one rather than a literal one. Last time we saw how John alludes to Daniel 2 in verse 1, just as Daniel is explaining Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue as being symbolic. And John deliberately uses the same language as Daniel, underline that what God has been showing to him is also symbolic. Most of the things that are about to unfold are not to be taken literally, lions and lambs, beasts, women, and so on, but each refers symbolically to another reality or even realities. Our third principle is that numbers count in Revelation. So the repeated series of the number seven serve as structure markers to John's listeners. And the repeated series of sevens and letters and seals and trumpets and bowls indeed form the structure for the letter itself. Each segment deals with the struggle of forces of good and evil and concludes with the triumph of the good and of the victory of the Lord God. Therefore, with an identical pattern, we must resist reading Revelation in a straight line, rather to see these patterns of repetition and consider different aspects that they highlight for us. Numbers also serve as highlighters, as it were, to important Old Testament concepts, anchoring us again 
in the Old Testament text. They are symbolic and flexible, therefore. And the overall effect of such usage in complex patterns leaves the reader, and indeed the listener, with the impression of God's comprehensive will and sovereignty, like a spider's web in which Satan and his forces are ultimately trapped. Though they attempt to free themselves from God's sovereignty, they cannot. Indeed, they do not escape, but rather face their final defeat. The fourth principle is that this is a letter written to a church under attack. It's not to satisfy idle curiosity of the end times. It's not to feed our hunger for knowledge of things not revealed to us, but rather it is to fortify, it is to stabilize the followers of the Lord Jesus in a steadfast hope of the sovereignty I have just mentioned and living, therefore, with a renewed confidence for the Lord himself. Therefore, our, our understanding of Revelation must always keep this in mind, this, this idea of the difference God intends it to make in the lives of his people. Its purpose is to awaken us to the dimensions of the battle at hand, to the strategies of the enemy, so that you and I as believers will respond to the attacks with a faithful perseverance and a steadfast purity, overcoming ultimately by the blood of the Lamb. So as we begin our study today, I want to make reference to these principles along the way when there will be need. So I hope you've written them down, or at least we'll go back to the sermon podcast and review them yourself. So to begin this Sunday, let's look at John's prologue. It's the first part of the prologue. I'll tackle the second half next Sunday. Now, as we've seen in our study of other New Testament letters, we must take particular care with prologues and really do a close reading of what they say, because they actually become the trajectory for the entire letter. We find this particularly in Romans, and we also found it in the letter to the Hebrews. So here we see John giving us the first launch, as it were, that this letter is a heavenly commentary, a a revelation. Next, that it shows to John, it was shown to John, for a specific reason, so that he would tell others about it. And third, the result, the consequence, that those who hear its contents will be blessed, stabilized, and strengthened. Let's go a little deeper now with the heavenly commentary in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, to show his servants the things that must soon take place. So he begins with what becomes ultimately its title, the Revelation, or transliterated in English today as Apocalypse, 
of Jesus Christ. Now, apocalypse is is a term for a heightened form of prophecy, which both declares present realities and points to how further ultimate events cast a long shadow over these present realities. Now, notice how the word revelation describes both the subject and the nature of the letter. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, in other words, this is both the revelation about Jesus Christ and the revelation from Jesus Christ. The original Greek allows both. In other words, Jesus Christ is both the author and the subject of the letter. All the letter's judgments ultimately underline for us the lordship of Jesus Christ, its subject. Yet it's received from Father, Son, and Spirit, mediated by the Son through the Spirit, authorship. And we know from our study of the New Testament that Revelation can focus on the Lord himself and on his message. The message is from Jesus Christ, but ultimately Jesus is the focus of everything in the New Testament, isn't it? Whether directly or indirectly. His purposes and history also reveal his character and invite us to worship him. So John begins here by describing his vision as revelation, which God gave him to show his servants things which must soon take place. So as to how we understand must soon take place, we must again refer to Daniel chapter 2, as we did last time. We saw then how John repeats the pattern of the Greek Old Testament translation of Daniel chapter 2 to both describe his letter's symbolic nature and also to emphasize the when characteristic, a temporal characteristic. In other words, what John is doing is linking what Daniel describes as the kingdom of God, which will pass in the latter days. So what Daniel describes as going to happen in the latter days, John rewords. He takes a different perspective than the prophet Daniel. In other words, it's after our Savior's ascension, after his session at God's right hand, his enthronement, his his coronation, as it were is when these latter days of Daniel are inaugurated. So what Daniel expected to happen in the last days, John is announcing as beginning to occur in his day. In other words, what Daniel expected to happen in a distance, John expects to begin now in his own generation. Indeed, he would point out, as we will see, But it's already started to happen in the persecution of the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. So John is underlining again for us the beginning of a prophetic fulfillment. It is not an imminent, ultimate fulfillment, like the final return of the Lord. And he says that this is a heavenly commentary something that is coming from a particular 
perspective, namely from the throne of God himself. So we have this heavenly commentary now being fulfilled in these latter days. But it is a commentary that must be shared with others. This is where he goes next. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, something interesting in the way that the author of the letter, as it were, John, does not qualify his name in any way. In other words, as to which John he is. I would suggest to you, then, that it's the most obvious John among the early Christian believers. In other words, John the Apostle, son of Zebedee, who personally knew the Lord Jesus in the flesh. Notice how he resists pointing to this status as the one who knew Jesus. Why is he doing that? Well, I would suggest to you, first of all, that it's his pastoral heart here. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, who else in this beginning of the prologue is named as servant? My dear friend, it's you and me. God gave him to show to his servants. You see what he's doing here? John does not exalt himself in so much as he has received God's gracious forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ, just like every believer has. Every bondservant knows. We are, as you will write later on in verse 9, companions in suffering for our Savior. But there is a bit more here. He does qualify it slightly, doesn't he? He talks about being God's servant. Again, an allusion to the Old Testament, namely the Old Testament prophets. This is the title they would take. He underlines how this revelation is a fulfillment of Old Testament oracle. And he stands in that great tradition as one of the prophets of God. So there's both a reference to humility, who we all are in Christ, and ultimately his authority given by Christ to proclaim his prophetic word. He is a servant, but he is the servant of the Lord God himself. This is quite common, particularly in Daniel and Zechariah. Both God's servants, where God sent his revelation through angelic messengers who provide commentary on the amazing panorama that the prophet witnesses. And so again, we see it here. So we have a heavenly commentary, which must be shared with fellow believers for a specific purpose, that they will be blessed, and that by being blessed, strengthened in their endurance to finish the race. And there we are in verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, 
for the time is near. You see, prophecy in the Old Testament has this this double aspect, a foretelling of God's word for his people in the present and a foretelling of events to happen in the future. It has that eschatological reference. Because of what will happen ultimately, we see it unfold before us in the present. So prophecy is not a series of predictions, but within the full scope of the witness of the scriptures, it's a word from God himself to the believer to give an obedient response in their life. Because, and it's repeated, the time is near. Now, John simply echoes here what our Savior said, doesn't he? Indeed, if we go to Mark's gospel, the first words our Savior proclaims there is that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Here we see that inauguration understanding. So John pulls out his highlighter, as it were, to underline this ethical command. Read, hear, obey, and therefore be strengthened, be blessed, because God's people are those who keep, obey the words of this book. And what is that blessing then? That God sent this message to his servants to tell them that those who keep the words of this book will be delivered, while those who have rebelled against God and opposed his people will answer to his justice. The curtain, as it were, is parted. And we see the ultimate resolution of all things. And by getting, as it were, a view of its great ending, we can with confidence take one more step in our present day experience. Because the blessing of revelation is to know for certain how things really are. God will be glorified. This is certain when he demonstrates his mercy in salvation to his people. And that mercy will be thrown into the spotlight by his justice which he visits upon all those who will oppose him. God's people are those who keep, obey the words of this book. And so he stresses, therefore, to his hearers that the blessed people are the ones who will pay close attention to the words of Revelation. Because God has given this as his gift to us to reveal himself in his heavenly glory so that those who know him are blessed and praise him regardless of circumstance. 
And we can understand this need in our own lives, can't we? Indeed, persecuted people are not normally inclined to feel that God has blessed them. And persecuted people are not normally inclined to praise God. So when persecuted people claim to be blessed, and when persecuted people praise God, they are behaving abnormally. And that's precisely what gets the attention of a fallen world. If you don't believe me, let me read you a quote from an unknown early Christian apologist written a generation after John wrote Revelation. The apologists were the first generation of Christian writers after the close of the New Testament canon. As word spread of this this new religion and rumors spread as to what they were about and who they were, the apologists rose to describe who we are as believers and what we do in our worship becomes a fascinating read to understand exactly what did the early church do on the Lord's Day. But here, we don't know the apologist's name, it's just a fragment, but he's writing a defense of the quality of character in Christian believers to a pagan accuser named Diognetus. This is what he writes. They love everyone. And by everyone, they are persecuted. They are unknown, yet they are condemned. They are put to death, yet they are brought to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are in need of everything, yet they abound in everything. They are dishonored, yet they are glorified in their dishonor. They are slandered, yet they are vindicated. They are cursed, yet they bless. They are insulted, yet they offer respect. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers. When they are punished, they rejoice as though brought to life. Do you see the point that this unnamed apologist makes for us? That the Christian believer lives in a way that says that knowing God is better than freedom from persecution. That it's better than avoiding martyrdom by denying him. It's better than wealth and money. Better than worldly fame. Knowing God is better than living contrary to God's word to avoid reprisal from the government. Now, I hope in this point in our own experience that most of us have probably not been canceled or lost our jobs because of our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ that may compel us to step forward from the crowd. But it does not mean that we do not face opposition for our faith. I think all of us may know of family members who resent our presence, even if we haven't said anything. 
because they know what you believe. Or perhaps you've been accused of being judgmental and then told that, well, I thought Christians weren't meant to judge or narrow-minded or an idiot, self-righteous, intolerant, bigoted, because you believe the only way to be right with God is to trust in the Lord Jesus. Well, consider this observation. As fear rises in Christian believers, evangelism, simply telling others about Jesus, falls. As fear rises in us, telling others falls. But John's testifying something in his letter, that there is a life after this life, in which the rewards for those who belong to Jesus will be far superior to all the pleasures of sin in this present world. And that's where our study calls us, doesn't it? To experience the gospel of Jesus Christ as John describes it. To know the relief that comes from knowing that faith in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross makes us right with God. To know there's something better to live for than this world. And if you're not a Christian, let me invite you to consider your standing before God. To consider the fact that you stand before him to give an account of your action. If you trust in Christ, then God will surround you with his righteousness because Christ has paid it all. But if you don't, you'll stand alone. And that is the choice that John puts before us in Revelation. And for us as believers, it is that great question, do we tell others still about the Lord Jesus or do we not? Do we call people to taste and see the Lord is good or do we not? My dear friends, as we join in this great feast that John will present to us in these weeks to come, I do hope we will indeed announce the glorious news that this ultimate fulfillment will show us. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the email newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple church, ancient truth, real people, new life.